everybody. Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pokolsky. I hope you guys are having an incredible day. I know it's a hard time, but I hope you're staying positive. Exercise is the key to keeping us positive and getting over that negative mind. There's been some really amazing people doing research out there on how we can effectively use exercise to change our brain, which ultimately controls our mind. If you guys are having a hard time right now, break the habit, get your body moving, feel good. Use those positive endorphins toward changing your brain. Doing it every day for 30 days when you're having that stressful scenario rather than muting out that discomfort, anxiety, pain, fear with food, alcohol, drugs, move. 10 minutes of intense exercise will completely change your neurochemistry and allow you to ultimately attack your life. So get on it for 30 days. Commit to yourself. Commit to your community. Commit to your tribe. Commit to me. 30 days. Let's do it all together. I want to feel amazing. I want you to feel amazing. Let's all do that. So anytime you feel a little bit of stress, we're going to step up. And if even if it's push-ups, if it's jumping jacks, if it's skipping rope, if it's going for a walk, going for a run, getting on your bike, whatever it is, you got to move and it's got to be intense for 10 minutes and that will completely change your mental state. Try it. Now, today's guest, Anya Fernald, is an absolute wonder woman of a human being. She is running a massive corporation with social responsible backings, meaning she's teaching us how to eat and how to grow meat sustainably. It's an incredibly well-run company with an incredible mission to completely overhaul the farming industry in America. And I absolutely loved my conversation with Anya. She has such a unique perspective on life and such a unique history that I dug a little bit into her history because I really wanted to know how a woman who was born or raised in Palo Alto, California, the hub of tech, ended up raised, ended up spending most of her time on a farm and learning to make cheese in Europe and learning to run a massive, massive corporation that's literally changing the scope of meat in this country. You guys are going to love this conversation. She's an absolute wealth of information. On top of being a mom of two and a chef, she's just an all-around incredible human being. So thank you very much to Anya and a shout-out to Belcampo. If you guys haven't ever used Belcampo, you know I've been using Belcampo for about six months, and it's just really notice a difference. The flavors, the quality of the meat, the quality of the fat is just phenomenally different. It's really amazing. And Anya tells us why exactly that is and how it comes to be. I know you guys are going to absolutely love this conversation with Anya Fernald, the CEO of Belcampo Meats. And if you guys want to check it out, you can head over to belcampo.com. Today's podcast is brought to you guys by my favorite MCT and collagen providers in the world, Bubs Naturals. Bubsnaturals.com is hooking us up with the best quality MCT powder and collagen that exists. Now, you guys know I've been making my intelligence coffee for years now. And as soon as I found Bubs, it just took it all to a whole new level. It stepped up my game because the quality is so much better. And anyone who's ever seen me post this online or other people post online, it doesn't require a blender. It just blends beautifully, even into cold brew, which is just mind-blowing. And I absolutely love the way it makes the coffee feel in my mouth. It's just fantastic. You guys are going to love it. I highly suggest you head over to bubsnaturals.com and use the code intelligence for 20% off. Shout out to Bubs for doing it in another incredible way. They're giving 10% of their profits to charity. If you guys aren't already behind the company, do so now. Bubsnaturals.com. Use the code intelligence for 20% off. Enjoy my conversation today with Anya Fernald. Guys, if you enjoy the show, 
head over and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you head over to muscleintelligence.com slash podcast, you can get all the old episodes and the show notes and also subscribe with one click of a button right there. We are here to help you live your greatest life in a body you love by providing the best information to empower you with the knowledge and skill set to love what you do. Have an amazing day. Enjoy the show. Keep telling me about your fitness journey. You said you're, you're training with some new functional implements. I just want you to keep telling me what you're doing because you're, you're always full of energy doing, doing so many things. I'm curious how you stay so fit, healthy, and vibrant. Well, I love to – right now I've been training with a Bulgarian bag with Mike mm-hmm. Holden, who's become a friend of mine because he and I decided to do carnivore together. So How far I into that are you? Into I'm the like carnivore? two weeks, but I kind of, it's my second time doing carnivore. I take a gradual stepping down. Takes me a while to like give up the almond butter in my diet. <laughs> me too. We're kindred souls. Now, for me, it went from almond butter. Now I shifted to olive oil. Okay. Uh, so I, I consume silly amounts of olive oil. I actually sent you some. I don't know if you ever got it, but oh, I, I some, did. That was right of COVID. But yeah, I yeah. Did. Thank you. Uh, I and I consume so well. much of that stuff. Like it's yeah. it's literally meat and olive oil in my diet. I think my adipose tissue is comprised of of saturated fat and olive oil. I think I might sweat olive oil. Um, so, but yeah, tell me about your current carnivore experiment. So yeah, I Mike and I started working on that. He wanted some guidance on the meats, and I of course know how to cook all the meats. And yes, so I I do a modified carnivore. I permit myself olive oil and lemon juice because I actually think with grass fed meat, olive oil and lemon juice is the magic combination to really enhance flavor and also nutrition and optimal absorption. And almond butter. And almond butter. That's right. just indulgence. I think actually pistachio butter is technically an opioid. Oh, I've never had it. Oh my God. Don't even, don't even slippery slope. Olive oil. So for me that, you know, I I find like hitting my kind of fat needs in carnivore diet with just animal fat is fatigue. And so with anything in nutrition, I feel like you have to set yourself an achievable goal. So I like to eat a lot of olive oil with my carnivore diet because I get my fat needs and I don't have to do it all with animal fat, which just feels like a slog after a while. So it's like you're hungry all the time or you're eating a ton of beef fat which you would like or not, but for me, it's just definitely not a, not a viable kind of energetic load. So I, I really just enjoy olive oil and I enjoy avocados. So my, my version of carnivore is literally uh, a lot of meat and uh, a lot of olive oil and occasional avocado. I don't eat a lot of them. I probably eat two to three a week, but that's really it. I think it's maybe a healthier version. And again, maybe maybe Paul Saladino will get mad at me for saying olive oil is a necessary part of it, but I really enjoy it. And if it's a good quality olive oil, I can only see it contributing in a positive way. Yeah, I I actually I had I was proud of myself because I was eating this beautiful like thick carpaccio. I like to eat a lot of rum as well, and it was like shavings and shavings of raw meat. And I just connected with Paul Saladino about Belcampo, my brand, and I was like, "Look at what I'm eating!" And I had a little dusting of black pepper on it, and he was like, "Great, but <laughs> but that pepper is totally toxic." And I'm like, "I don't think y'all, I don't think we're playing on the same team." Like at some point, I feel like you have to, and this is this is probably just physiology as well. But you know what I was working on with Mike yesterday is kind of an example of how I play with it, which is that you know I made pemmican because pemmican is a great snack food. If so you're tell us about pemmican. what that is because my audience may not know what that is. Yeah, pemmican is like the OG energy bar. It's unfortunately it's like a part of the narrative of how Native people were destroyed because it is a Native food. It's a real indigenous food across the Americas, and it was then used by 
you know, the Europeans to fuel their expansion. So what you do is go and get lots of buffalo and think about it. Back in the day before refrigeration, large ruminants like buffalo and ox were not really edible, right? Because you have this, you know, 700 pounds of meat. What are you going to do? You can't refrigerate it. It's very, very difficult to conserve it. So pemmican is a typical food of that time pre-refrigeration because what you do is take all the meat and cut it into little tiny pieces and then let it dry out, grind it down with a little bit of salt and typically some wild berries, and then you um, moisten it with the rendered fat from the animal. And then you make basically a paste out of it. And that paste people keep in a little leather bag and eat it to fuel themselves. It's really high calories. So it's delicious. So the issue for me with pemmican today, so I made it to play with it. And I, you know, watched a bunch of like colonial reenactment videos about how to do it and made my own suet. But this suet, which is rendered beef fat from the soft fat from around the organs. So the, you know, the organs of the animal are extremely vulnerable. You, I'm no doubt, have done lots of combat sports and stuff and know what it's like to get punched in the liver, right? Or in the kidney, how painful that is. Mm-hmm. Our organs are super, super delicate. And so they're really surrounded by a lot of like soft pillow-like fat. In the pig, that's called leaf lard, and in the beef, it's called suet. So within the beef and within the pork, there are different categories of fat that have different functionalities in the animal. So in terms of edibility for humans, that soft, um, it'd be called visceral fat. Like that soft, like organ surrounding fat is really the, the primo fat. So in the case of pigs, the leaf lard is what you used to use to bake, like apple apple pie crust. Mm-hmm. And then in the beef, the suet is what you use for anything culinary. So I made the pemmican. So I took a whole chuck, like a like probably 15 pounds and, and dried, sliced it thin and dried it out for about 20 hours, ground it up into a powder and then mixed it with rendered fat. And it was okay, but not fabulous because the suet has a low solubility. So on your palate, it leaves like kind of grease. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's it's you have the memory of the flavor in your mouth, mm-hmm. but persistent. So I tried it again for Mike, which now we've decided is the pinnacle pinnacle. That's actually pinnacle pemmican, is to take a really high quality French cultured butter, melt that and mix that with the powdered meat. That I've been snacking on since I made it. Basically, so not using the soup, but using the butter. It's just a different, you know. So the in within the beef processing its own fat into milk, right? Yeah. That creates a softer, it's a more soluble fat. It has a lower melting point and it has a higher number of, of flavorful aromatic compounds and better solubility. That's just the cow's body working its magic. When it turns its own fat into milk, that fat has a greater solubility. But that traditional pemmican, it's a fun project for anybody who's doing carnivore because with carnivore, you can't snack on too many things, you know? So tired yeah. of the hard boiled egg. You can keep it in your freezer, in the fridge. It's like a little bar and you basically just grind up meat that you dry out in the oven and mix it with some fat and make like a little crunchy bar. Out of it. Can you tell me how you dried it out and how you turn it into a paste? Because I've never heard our powder. I've never heard yeah, it's it the same way you might make jerky. You take meat and cut it against the grain. Any low cost cut is going to work. I use both chuck and a round for it. Other cuts you might use would be a sirloin, mm-hmm. top round, bottom round. You could use a brisket, just cut the fat off. So anything kind of inexpensive, these big big load-bearing muscles from the animal are perfect for this. And then cut it into quarter-inch strips against the grain. Now, against the grain is really important because the grain is the muscle fibers, right? So in our own bodies, like in your, this here is going to have the grain of your muscles to be this way. The same thing goes with with a beef, right? They're going to have the muscles need to contract and the way that they contract, that axis is the grain. And you see it, right? You see it in the in the muscle culture, you see little lines. You might remember it like mostly like in a flat iron or something. Mm-hmm. A ribeye or a New York, 
those stakes are cut against the grain. So those stakes actually come from around the spinal cord of the animal down the back. Mm-hmm. So the spinal cord of the animal has two loins, as do we, right? They're the muscles that help us stabilize our spine. Yep. Those muscles don't get very much exercise. And the more exercise the muscle gets, the tougher it tougher. is. Okay. So the tenderest muscle in a beef is the tenderloin. That's actually only used for mating in the animal. It's used for, literally for thrusting. Hmm. So that's why it's very, very tender because it doesn't get much use. These muscles in a beef around the, the spinal cord, those are used for jumping, rearing. So again, they don't get a lot of use. What gets a lot of use? Shoulders, legs, the haunches, the neck. Oh my gosh, the cheeks, so much use. Those are cuts that you're going to have to graze, dry, et cetera. And those are the cuts that you're going to have to cut really against the grain finely when you cook them. So you need to look at the muscle of the animal always to understand kind of how best to cut it. The more tender muscles you can cut really fine, uh, sorry, really thickly. And then the, the less tender muscles you have to cut very fine to make them tender. So to make pemmican, cut it against the grain. So look for the little lines on the muscle, line the knife up perpendicular to those lines, cut through it, quarter inch slices, lay it on a mesh, like a cookie, you know, a sheet that you might use to cool your cookies down and then put it in your oven on the lowest temperature. For 20 hours. 12 to 20 hours, depending on your oven circulation and the temperature outside, a couple different things. So it's got to just be brittle and hard. Then put it in your Vitamix or Cuisinart and grind it in batches into just a fine powder. That fine powder in and of itself is delicious. Right. It's just powdered meat. Yeah. Um, I use, I've used it in making meatballs as a stabilizer instead of breadcrumbs. Um, you could use it on as a topping on like a deviled egg would be delicious, like maybe a substitute for where you might use a bacon bit. So that in and of itself is super good. But then to make the pemmican, you then add fat to that, which turns it into a paste. Can I put it on like a Traeger or something for, for a super long period of time and have like a smoky? I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. The smokiness is going to be very intense at that point. Hmm. Remember how um, lean meats absorb more smoke flavor than fat. So fat's a real buffer for flavor absorption. So that lean, I mean, fat holds a lot of flavor, but it doesn't absorb as quickly. If you ever had an experience of, of cooking like a very lean steak on smoke, it'll get incredibly smoky. Um, Whereas like a pork belly, you can throw it on there and cook it for forever. A brisket cook it for forever. It doesn't get that smoky. Well, that's the fat. The fat's like it's insulated, right? It keeps it from absorbing that. So very lean cuts are going to develop an overpowering smoky taste because they differentially absorb more smoke. So I would avoid the smoke and I would avoid using a commercial jerky as well, which would be a shortcut because you're going to have lots of stuff in there that adds a lot of flavor. And the flavor is going to be intense already. So I would just keep it clean and dry. And then the strips that you make of meat are in and of themselves good snacks. You want to, you can, that's how you make beef jerky too, is you could just put something on that meat like soy sauce or coconut aminos or something and make a little jerky out of it. But you want the neutral dried meat flavor as a base. Otherwise it's going to have sort of too much complexity. Got it. So Anya, I took a massive interest in your life and I think you're one of the most interesting humans I've ever met. So I want to mm-hmm. learn more about you. Well, seriously, they, one of the, it, it's fascinating. So you're, both your parents were professors at Stanford, but somehow you managed to become a 
chef and you spent a lot of time in Europe learning how to make cheese. I want to learn how all of that went down. Yeah. <laughs> Walk me yeah. through your life. So my parents are, are very, very brainy, I'd say. I always feel like I'm a little bit of the of the odd one out. My sister is actually a college professor. She's a professor at Cal as well. She's in public nutrition. So my father's a neurobiologist. My mother's a development psychologist. And, you know, I grew up in a highly academic household. My parents were just very adventurous as well. And, uh, you know, my, I was born in Germany. They moved, I mean, I'm not German, but they moved there for my father's work. Um, he worked with a Nobel Prize winner named Conrad Lorenz on animal and printing. And so he lived there for almost a decade. And that I was actually born on a very rural raw milk dairy in Bavaria as a result. So I lived in, I think that the early raw milk, like in my diet and my microbiome definitely like wove into my brain in some way, because I have always had a fascination about animal agriculture. So there's sort of like two big through lines that I think about. And one is like, how does your habit and passion just come from the practical tools that you use to thrive as a child? So one whole area of my life just comes from the fact that my, my mom is not a confident cook and she's somebody who's very smart but gets overwhelmed very easily by, by, by life, right? So I, at a really early age, started to cook. I, I cooked my family's first Thanksgiving when I was like 10 years old or something, like really young. So I got in there mostly to help my family dynamic, which my mom would often have like like breakdowns or crying around mealtime, right? So I was like, well, here we go. So I dove into that. And then the other thing is that I'm, I'm like just highly sort of, I don't mean like it's not industrious, but I like to be busy and I find a lot of emotional soothing in domesticity and in homemaking and cooking. So it's very meditative for me. It's the same thing, reason I like exercise. I like cooking. I like everything kind of domestic. I used to be really into crocheting. I was a passionate, this is going to make you laugh. I was into spinning, like spinning wool on a spinning wheel. Yeah. Manual spinning wheel, like all through my childhood. So I've always been really into kind of like quirky, manual, old fashioned arts. And I think it just has to do with like loving handcraftedness and beauty. And then also just being somebody with an inclination towards manual tasks as a way of like self soothing, meditation, calm, ritual, you know? I'm never the one to like, I can't, I can't meditate for more than, you know, half an hour probably at most, but I can dig into a nitty gritty culinary task or spend three hours cranking out a beautiful meal without like stopping for a beat, you know, and I'll be deep breathing the whole time and in a, in a real flow, you know? So that's something that is something is a skill that's brought me a lot of peace. So I think that's kind of, so part of it's like the, the family dynamic of helping as a young girl, mm -hmm. um, just trying to help my mom and help my family. And then the other part of it is having a personality that's like highly energetic, easily distracted and getting to a place where I could be highly productive had came with the, the sort of impetus to learn some skills that were about kind of rituals and soothing and activity, you know? So you grew up on a farm. So is that would you where you would say your kind of passion for regenerative farming came in? Because like you're you're this you know resourceful woman who developed this skill set as a chef and somehow turned it into this incredibly life or, or maybe world altering sustainable meat business. And I just kind of want to bridge the gap there. Like where did that come in? Okay, so, so I didn't. I left that farm when I was three, so I was very small. Okay. I had Definitely, like I grew up in Eugene, Oregon, so farmers markets and stuff like that. So I had a lot of kind of agricultural stuff around me as a kid. The piece, you know, I was interested in cooking, as I mentioned, and I loved the handwork side of things. And I worked as a cook, 
And I worked as a baker. This is like in, in college. I took a year off. I worked as a baker in Greece. I got, I worked on a, a dude ranch as a baker. I did a lot of kind of culinary things dabbling in that. I got out there and, and tried that. And I realized that the culinary side of it really wasn't for me. And yeah, I'm known as a chef now, or as a, I, I think of myself as like an elevated home cook. I never gravitated to that world, which is kind of ironic because then I ended up on Iron Chef America. You know, I was a judge on Iron Chef for, for a decade and right. worked with all these amazing, famous chefs. And it's totally not my jam. Like, the, I mean, they wanted me because I have a sustainability credibility, right? And I, I think also just, you know, wanting a woman that was in the space and things. But it's just like, to me, fine dining and most of that food, it's a basically highly refined processed food in a prettier package. Mm-hmm. You know, like all the foams and gels, it's full of carrageen and gum and xanthan gum and stabilizers. And, and it's, it's basically really fancy processed food. And that's just not my interest. You know, for me, the perfect meal has always been like uh, amazing, like fresh cheese from somewhere, you know, something really beautiful and in season, a great olive oil poured over all of that some good salt. Like that's, I'm a very essential eater and I like basic foods that look like what they are um, and taste of a place and have a personality. I find that that's where I find my satiety. You know, like I find that there's like an emotional satiety and a, and a fullness that comes from eating just good food. that looks like food that I recognize as food. So I didn't really want to be part of the fine dining world at all. And I also, you know, it's also like lifestyle. I realized pretty early on, I worked in some kitchens and it's like, it's a crummy place to be a woman. It's a lot of alcohol abuse. And so there's a point in your life where you're like, who do I want to hang with? And what world do I want to be in? And I looked at that and I'm like, not for me, but I love farms, you know, and I loved being on farms. And so I actually, then after college, I went and I worked, I got a job with a cheesemaker and I started making, first I made sheep cheeses in Wales and then I moved to Italy and I worked, actually, I made Cary Philly first, which is a traditional Welsh cheese as a, a cow cheese. I also worked at a sheep dairy there. And then I moved to Italy and I worked in Tuscany on a sheep milk dairy. And then- So why, there. why, why cheese? Is that just like, I want to go learn how to do, use this amazing craft or was that like, why cheese? It, it's just kind of functional. I started making bread. I worked at a baker, which is an easy thing, you know, place to, to kind of get in in terms of craftsmanship and food, not having any experience and being like a dope from Palo Alto, California, right? Like, what are you going to do? So you can teach yourself to do that to some degree. Then when I got into, I love history and food and like, what's the narrative connection like to place in food. So I was interested in traditional American foods, like in legacy American foods. So in that I started to make, bake a lot with whey and buttermilk Hmm. and get whey which is, you know, a byproduct. It's a, it's a slightly acidic, high-protein byproduct of cheese making. Um, and it's rich in, in one of the two proteins that are in milk. And so it's something, it's a, it's, it adds like a nice stability to baked goods. You probably, I mean, whey powder is a really popular. My, my demographic is very familiar with whey. In a different <laughs> context, though. Right? Different context. So I started making cheese to make whey so I could make traditional American breads. And then I was like, well, this is actually more fun. And I remember my college roommate still teases me because I, I had like in our little dorm room um, closet, I would have like that cheesecloth hanging with little cheese in it and like a bucket at the bottom. <laughs> such a weirdo. Um, but I was like, you know, I'm like making, getting all this raw milk and like making it. And this is before it was cool, you know, to be into food. But I just was fascinated. It was so fun to be able to make this cheese and have it turn out great and taste it. And then like, learn about the different types of coagulation of milk and the different things and make ricotta. So I was like, this is fun and interesting. And there's some part of me that was like, wanted to be out on the land. 
So I got, I mean, I got myself over there. I got a, a small fellowship to, to sustain like a non-academic study for a year. You know, I didn't have any resources, but I was fortunate to not have student loans. So I was able to be after college fairly free um, as long as I could sustain myself. And so I moved, my first place was in Wales, as I mentioned. And then I went to, I traveled around a lot, visited a lot of dairies. And then I landed in Italy. And in this time, though, I started to like eat an extremely traditional diet. So I started to live, this was 1998, and I lived on farms. And I ate like three pounds of cheese and like a pound of meat a day. And I came out of, you know, the low-fat 90s, and it was a very different thinking about food. And I personally thrived. Like, it was just day and night. I didn't have dry skin. Like, I didn't have any split ends in my hair. I had cavities that disappeared. Like I went to my dentist after a year and they're like, actually that cavity we said you had, you don't anymore. Like there was just some stuff that happened that I was like, this is kind of interesting because this is really different than what I think I'm supposed to be eating, which is I'm eating a butt ton of fat all day long and it's all animal fat. Right. Um, and, and then I was also moving a ton and like in physical work, I love, you know, like, you know, being in a dairy is like really manual and lifting and moving and stuff. So I was just, you know, I was really in heaven and I also just, my mood was really stable. I felt great. And there was a part of me that just said, Anya, don't leave, like just figure the shit out and like stay here for a while and learn and then learn enough to come back and do something different. And it's like that time in Italy, then, so I ended up staying in Italy. I got a job in Sicily, in a very rural part of Sicily. And Sicily is already the most rural part of Italy. So it was incredible. Ragusa, Sicily. I moved there when I was 22 and I got a visa and I got this job working for a rural cooperative that was funded by the European Union to do development. And I got their products exported to the United States. I set up their whole like branding program. Um, And it was a very... It was like a pivotal time in my life because I continued with the health and I also learned really to cook, you know, and I learned really to eat because I was in a super rural area. A lot of my food was foraged because I, everybody was extremely poor and gathered a lot of food. Like most weekends, people, my friends went out and picked different greens and gathered stuff and cooked over the open fire for the first time a lot. And it just, again, like, my health was better. My I lived in a you know a little town where for about two weeks every fall, all of the garages would be open and all, everybody was sitting out in lawn chairs and they had big cauldrons going of their tomato sauce in a like over a Cajun burner and a huge and they everybody was out in the street and that was like and then they packaged it with a funnel into little old like Amari bottles and Coke bottles, like little reused glass bottles, and then they capped. And you spent like two weeks doing that. And then the olive harvest, like there was this whole ritual and seasonality around food. And that just opened up my eyes to kind of how your life could be different. At the same time, I was working in Sicily in a government funded organization. And, and my I left because it became very heavy for me in the sense that it's quite corrupt. I was really naive. And I didn't really realize like, of course, I'm going to go work in a in like a big consortium in <laughs> in rural Sicily, it was right at the time the EU was being formed. And my boss from that time is actually in federal prison now. So I'd say it was a place where I learned a lot about life on a lot of different levels. But it was incredible. It was just like, I just saw a way of eating where the poorer you were, the better you ate. And the richer you were, the more likely you were to go to McDonald's. It was exactly the opposite of American culture because you know, the, the poorer you were, the more likely you were to have a small garden 
and you know go directly to farms and buy stuff in bulk. So it was just a totally different upside down way. And it kind of made sense to me that you would be able to live more frugally off the land and not have it be like having a, a vegetable garden is something that is a you know a sign of privilege in in a way like we have mm-hmm. it in the US. Um, so I, I I can't underestimate like how important that is to me, just that worldview of living in a traditional agricultural society, seeing the downsides of it, highly corrupt, not great for women. You know, there are some downsides for sure, but and I don't mean to romanticize that, you know, but in the, the other side of it was just there's aspects of that agricultural life that really spoke to me. And I also saw how things used to be done. You know, the, the cows that I work with there, the average milk production was like two liters a day. So like a third of a gallon, you know, that the Holsteins and Frisians that we produce in the US, it's like 13 to 15 gallons a day. Wow. So what is that? Like that's 45 times the yield of a traditional milk cow, 45 times. So for me, like that kind of baseline of knowledge of like, well, this is what traditional agriculture looks like has become a reference point for me. To, you know, of like where we, how much we've bloated things, how much we've changed things. But yeah, after a couple of years in Sicily, I moved, I was recruited actually to work in Northern Italy and I became the director of a microfinance program for small scale food entrepreneurs. And um, these are people with traditional products, not an entrepreneur like we think now of like somebody sure. making like a cool new whatever granola bar or something. This is like very traditional products that they were trying to kind of spiff up for export or make them compliant with European Union guidelines. And in that time, in all of this time, I'd say my real passion for meat because of just the resonance for my own health. You know, I had been a vegetarian for nine years through uh, high school and much of college. And, and I, you know, I, I, my personal health kind of revolution that happened when I moved abroad was primarily due, I think, to switching to a very heavy on animal products diet. So all that kind of together, you know, I'd say I, I really was very driven to, to learn and to experience and I was blessed to be unburdened by, you know, student debt. And I was able to take basically my whole 20s and just live and learn about food and agriculture. So you come back to America and for some, something possessed you to start this. Um, was it almost immediately that you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring these cultural uh, traditions back to what, my life? Like, how did that happen? Because you're, you're a girl who grew up in Palo Alto and everyone else in Palo Alto is probably craving cell phones and high heels. And, and you're like, hey, I want to I want to bring regenerative farming back to this country. Where did that come in? So I, the first thing that happened that I need to point out, because you do, you know, you are interested in health as am I. And that's like, but I, you know, just plowed ahead in my life. I got a job. I was running a, basically, a, I set up a produce distribution company on behalf of, an, of a nonprofit that was funded by the USDA. It's sort of complicated, small scale growers. I built this business that was selling to hospitals and very cool concept. We ended up selling it. But in that time, I gained like 40 pounds in the space of three or four months. And I hadn't really shifted. I'd never been overweight in my life. And I hadn't shifted much in how I was living. But I was like, wait a second, put the brakes on. What the hell is going on with my body? And what I came to understand is that the caliber of what I was putting in my body was very different. Granted, I mean, I was probably under more stress. Like there may be other factors that had changed, but I had this radical shift in my head. So speculating like the hormone, the hormones that exist in animals, is that kind of what you were with? I eat a lot of meat. I continue to eat a lot of meat, but that's, you know, I ended up, you know, losing weight and getting it back together. But the part, the journey that got me to being able to get my health back together was, and where this initial impetus around meat came from. Cause I'd, I'd worked in meat businesses and in course in dairies, but I hadn't 
been inspired to drive it. But I, 2005, I bought my first cow right after I moved back because I, I was not feeling good. I also felt um, foggy and sad again. It was like a lot of the stuff that had had memories of kind of like, well, I used to feel this way a lot, you know? And then I thought, you know, I, I, it's sunnier here in California than it was in Northern Italy. Like there was not any other big changes, you know, but I, so I bought a cow and I was running a produce company. So I had like refrigerated trucks and stuff. And so I picked it up and brought it. I had a group of friends together and we distributed it. And that was kind of the first step in my journey to getting my health back together and being able to kind of eat the way that I did in Italy. And what I learned pretty quickly is that in America, there's like no such thing as a casual choice about food. So when I had come back from, you know, like a seven, eight years in Europe and just kept on eating the way that I ate, I was sort of doomed to be on a worse health pathway. Because if you just take the option of what's available in the US, it's likely to be toxic and inflammatory. And I learned that just like on a crash course with my own body. And then based on my own priorities and what was available in my landscape. So I live in California. So there's dope farmer's markets, great organic produce. Like it was it's pretty easy to get the good vegetables. But I was like, well, how the hell do I get the meat? You know, I go to Whole Foods and it wasn't clear where it came from. It didn't look or smell great. I had the same issues, you know, with this. And, and they've actually gotten a lot better in their meat sourcing since then. But I think in the early years, it wasn't, you know, awesome. And I, I just, I, I couldn't find the type of meat that I wanted to eat. So I ended up buying whole cows and whole pigs. I set up a CSA for my community to get that product. And I, I tried with, you know, two weeks on corn and then eventually went to full grass fed and finished as my own journey, my own learning, you know? And in doing that, I also learned to cook a lot of different cuts of meat. But I, I really understood that in the US, you there's no default option. There's no just take the status quo and make it work. I think you have to be extremely cautious about how you source and prepare your yep. food. I experimented with my own body for that for a year, suffered and got it back on track, but it was amazing to me. And then the opportunity kind of presented itself where I was like, wow, if I'm somebody who cares about my health and I'm having to drive trucks around to get meat delivered from remote places and set up distribution networks and stuff, it's like, this is an opportunity. You know, this is something that's a real problem to be solved for people who care. And um, I ended up starting the company was kind of a, of a happy accident of after I had built and sold my the next business in 2008, I started a consulting company. And that consulting company was really for me to figure out my next gig. I knew I wanted to do something bigger and really firmly in the for pro, in the business space because I felt like the market, I'd done things that were like typically like a business owned by a nonprofit or a hybrid with strong social values because of my own mission. You know, I really felt like it was important to have a very strong social ethos. By 2008, I'm like, I feel like the whole business world is shifting towards sustainability as a priority. I met my business partner through one of my mentors, Alice Waters, who had been had worked with on and off for, at that point, probably a decade. So he approached her about a project. He hired my consulting company, and then I developed Belcampo as a project for land that he owned in Northern California. So he owned about 6,000 acres of the land that we now own. So between 2010 and 11, I developed a business plan and concept for the brand and the name and the domains, all that kind of stuff. And then we launched in 2012. I bought the land for the slaughterhouse in the end of 2011. So that was probably the first real acquisition. So, I mean, in my business partner, Todd Robinson, I found somebody who was had the, you know, the resources to back something significant and who was passionate about making a commitment to sustainable ag. So that was a really unique 
combination. And I'd say that's the biggest block to businesses like ours, like Belcampo, thriving mm-hmm. in the future is like the capital, the patient resources that can fund systemic change. You know, in our case, it's very capital intensive, built a slaughterhouse, you know, 30,000 acres of land. It's six restaurants now. It's a huge, you know, it's a big infrastructure. And so all of that is resource intensive. And so that's kind of one of the, the major things I need to call out is the business is a great idea, but it's also an enormous amount of committed patient capital that's been, that's been crucial to the success. Hey guys, interrupt this show to bring you a message about MCT. A lot of people are asking me, what is MCT and why should I be taking it? MCT is medium chain triglyceride, typically sourced from coconut oil or palm oil. My preference is always going to be coconut oil. So palm oil is this really interesting thing that although it can provide some nutritional benefits, seem to be added to a lot of unhealthy foods. And the way that it's sourced, typically in forests of South America, is actually by eradicating the forest or actually tearing down the forest and destroying the habitats of the orangutans and the monkeys. And it seems to be something that I really want to avoid morally. So finding an MCT that's sourced from high quality organic coconuts is really, really a good idea. Now, MCT comes in many different forms. So if you guys are curious about it and what it is and why it works, MCT can come in any different ratio of carbon atoms. So I'll explain what that means. So we have C6, C8, C10, and C12. And the number is indicative of the number of carbon atoms. So C8 has eight carbon atoms. C10 has 10. And C8 is the one that's been shown to be efficacious as far as improving energy production, particularly getting into the brain for immediate energy productions and ultimately turning into ketones in the brain or in the body. So it's been used pretty consistently for a long time now and proven in science that high quality C8 powder is a tremendous benefit to improving energy, whether it be someone on a low carb diet, someone on a low calorie diet or on a ketogenic diet, ultimately a really great way to provide immediate energy to your body and mind. So our friends at Bubs have produced an incredibly high quality MCT powder, which is 70% C8 and 30% C10. They are now whole 30 approved and they're hooking us up with 20% off. So if you guys want to get hooked up with 20% off, which is really, really significant in the supplement industry, especially when these guys are giving 10% back to charity with every purchase that we make, I strongly suggest we support Bub's Cause because it's a really great company, a really great group of people over there. So they are offering MCT powder and collagen protein, two things that go into my coffee every single day. I'm a massive fan. And as I say, they are now whole 30 approved. So that's a huge shout out to Bubs. You guys can get hooked up with 20% off at bubsnaturals.com. Thank you guys very much for listening. And I suggest you add MCT into your daily regime, especially a high quality one with primarily C8. Enjoy the rest of the show. And don't forget to pick up your Bubs. Trying to sustain the competitive nature of the meat industry just sounds like an incredibly daunting task because I couldn't imagine the profit margin being tremendous on most cuts of meat and then trying to scale that in a sustainable way when you can't have the same type of yields as the 45x milk producers and the you know the rate of turnover of cows. I just, I just 
see it as such a challenging obstacle for you guys to face? Yeah, the value proposition has been a hard sell, you know, because the way that we raise beef, the way that any small regenerative farm raises beef, it costs like three to five times what it costs to raise conventional beef. Mm-hmm. So the, it's a huge difference. And, you know, in the case of chicken, it's like 10 times, right? So getting the consumer, I think that, you know, the first couple years of our business were enormously hard to get the value proposition to resonate with customers. And I think in the, in the past three years, we've seen the actual lift and we've seen people getting it. And unfortunately, you know, it's like people want to believe that what they're buying is okay. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to believe that it can be cheap and be good for you. They want to believe that they are happy hens, you know, and it's like, I'll just break it to you. There's no happy hen for under like, you know, $5 a pound anywhere, right? That just doesn't exist. There's no happy cow for under $8 a pound, right? So the problem is there's a really significant premium and the case around health and taste is not firm enough yet for customers to really get it, right? right. But I felt heartened by two really key things. One is coffee and the other is dairy, right? So if you look at coffee and dairy, a cup of Starbucks used to be expensive and now a cup of Blue Bottle is expensive, right? And there's even more expensive than that out there. In dairy, a similar thing happened where you actually have premiumization because of differentiation. So you have to look at commodities with the space to differentiate. Mm-hmm. And go to a grocery store, go to like the cheapest grocery store and go to the chocolate bar section. And there's like a fancy chocolate bar that's like $8, you know, mm-hmm. and five years ago, the fanciest chocolate bar was $3, right? Mm-hmm. So there's space. Every category in America is developing this differentiation. So it's just a question of time for meat to get there or just the very beginning of it. But it's the reason why you mentioned the meat industry, the reason why it hasn't differentiated, right? It's not that consumers don't want it. It's that there's very strong vested interests that don't want Keeping it. it cheap. Yeah. Because people are willing to spend $40 for a steak at a steakhouse mm-hmm. or often more than that, right? And they're still getting a crappy, you know, feedlot, corn-fed, you know, grain-finished type steak. So, mm-hmm. you know, if they're willing to do that at a restaurant, you know, when I, I I eat out, sell them now because I eat Bel Campo steaks and it's just so much better than anything else, right? Like you could taste the difference that the quality is exponentially greater. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't even bother to go to, I'd, I'd rather spend a little bit more on a steak that I purchased from you, make myself. And it takes 10 minutes. It's not like it's a huge amount of time and it's just so much better. That just stopped me from having to go out. I end up saving money and doing something great for not only myself, but for the environment. And uh, I think that's why I've become such a, an advocate for your company. If you have good products, your cooking techniques are simpler. You know, if you have good eggs, scrambled eggs are a great dinner. Yeah. You know, I think about these, I see recipes for chicken all the time that have like these really complicated sauces and there's sugar in them, almost all these or maple syrup or honey or some sweetener. And then there's lots of marinade time and it's so complicated and fussy or they're like rolled up with cream cheese and shit like that. It's like, what are you guys doing? Just make a damn good chicken and just cook it simply and serve it with some like chimichurri or like a homemade aioli on the side and call it done. But I'd much rather spend, you know, 20 plus dollars on a chicken and have three great meals from that than be fussing around with endless hyper-processed sauces, complicated cooking techniques. We just have this mentality now. And there's another piece of it too, is that I think we've been kind of coached that meat is dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's It's something that needs to be overcooked to be safe. 
it's kind of gotten into this protein box where we're like, it's just the protein and you just do stuff to it to make it taste good. We don't think of it as something that can really just sing in its own right. And you have high quality stuff and it can just stand alone. You've had that experience. Like right. you have a slice of tomato on a junkie hamburger and it's like, Ugh, get this out of there. But you have a, a ripe tomato in the peak of the season, cut it in half with salt on it. It's like, that's so really good, good yeah. right? And meat can be the same way. It has the same spectrum. You know, we can't just say that's the protein. We can't just say that's the thing that you got to put a lot of satay sure. sauce on it to make it palatable. Like you need to get protein. If you can't serve your steak just with salt on it, you need a new steak. Yeah. And, and you taste, you know, eating the fat of the Belcampo steaks, you could taste the texture and, and the flavor is completely different, right? It's not like you're eating something that's like chewy and you kind of want to spit it out. You're like, this is actually flavorful and delicious, which brings us to this, this conversation around, you mentioned happy cows, happy chickens. What does that mean? What is the difference between a conventionally raised farmed chicken and, and cow as compared to what you guys are doing? So obviously we know it's the food, we know they're eating grass, but there's got to be more than that. So I'm curious what else it looks like to, to, have you guys raised these these cows at volume now? It seems like you guys are doing it on, on a relatively large scale yeah. and doing that in a sustainable way. Yeah. Okay. So major points of differentiation, just think about the key points in life, right? Mating, childbirth, child rearing, adolescence, adulthood, mm-hmm. right? So in the, the course of an animal's life, you're looking to get your animals in, inseminated and pregnant have a happy, healthy birth, get them then to a mature, get them through puberty because after puberty, just like in humans, animals can gain a lot more weight, right? So they can, you know, kids can eat a ton and stay lean. Same with small animals. Like they can eat a lot and stay very, very lean. When they go through um, puberty, they'll actually develop the possibility to develop intramuscular fat. So the whole purpose of agriculture is to take animals through that life cycle. What we do is do it on an evolutionary diet with natural practices. So we're not using artificial insemination, we're not using um, cycling or hormonal, you know, modifications of our animals to ensure that there's a higher pregnancy rate. So there's some little things like that that are just like more natural. We use natural bowls instead of, you know, uh, semen tubes. So or, or embryos, right? That certain operations might. So there's that's one piece of it that's just different. That's sort of a nice to know, but doesn't really have an impact on you as a consumer. The things I think that you need to be concerned about as a consumer that's different is how fast the animal makes it through those phases of life. So in a feedlot animal, it's only in the feedlot for a couple months at the end of its life. It starts out its life on what's called a cow-calf operation, which is where you have mother cows that are inseminated and they drop a baby. Um, It's typically on grass or outdoors, at least on dirt, and they'll nurse on their moms for usually six months. They'll go to a stalker operation where they grow a bit and they hit puberty and then they go to a feedlot where they finish their life on a high calorie intensive diet and with very little mobility. And that's like so, corn and soy and, and typical grains. Is that what they're wish, I mean, you wish it was all grain. The reality is that you have, it's legal and very common to use things like plastic shavings as fiber. Sawdust is used in feed food waste. So any candy batches that are expired or damaged or problems like Skittles are fed uh, waste Skittles, waste M&Ms are fed to cows, leftover chocolate, industrial byproducts from the food system. So they're fed a maladaptive diet of highly intense. In, in the best case scenarios, it's all corn, okay? And in the more mainstream, it's a mix of corn and other things. Even if it's all corn, it's maladaptive. Right. Cows are ruminants. We are monogastric humans, mm-hmm. like pigs and chickens, have one digestive tract. 
we're designed with one stomach that's very good at handling intense calorie foods. If you or I ate grass, we would be probably dead within two weeks, right? right. Because we can't handle this really high fiber, um, low calorie intensive food. Cows, on the other hand, have five stomachs. They have the opposite relationship with high intensity calorie foods. When they eat a calorie intense diet, they get extremely inflamed and sick and they gain weight rapidly. So in a feedlot, you're putting them really through puberty quickly, and then you're gaining weight rapidly through a mix of a maladaptive, inflammatory, high-calorie diet, lack of exercise, and high social stress. All of that is tempered by pretty um, pervasive, what's called prophylactic antibiotic use. So you have a lot of animals that are competition for mates, resources, you know, and it's, it's like all the, the social interaction is highly stressful because you're confined, um, foods put in one place. It's, it's a stressful, confined environment. Um, you're not allowed to move around and you're eating food that makes you sick. So to not get sicker, you're, you're fed antibiotics as part of your ration. Much meat is advertised as being antibiotic free. Mm-hmm. Now, if the animals are sick though, they're allowed to get antibiotics. So if you're a smart operator who wants the 1.2 times typical weight gain that you get with antibiotics. So you can oh, increase it 20 to 50%. You get the vet that tells you that they're always going to get sick. And to the vet's credit, if you got 9,000 chickens in a hoop house or 2,000 beef under one roof with all the poop everywhere and everything, hell yeah, they're going to get sick, mm-hmm. right? So it's not, it's not dishonest, you know? So you have prophylactic antibiotic use to suppress their, you know, weak immune system response to the stressful environments. Mm-hmm. So I think about it as like, Think about like fourth grade recess, you know, <laughs> and like all the snacks are in one corner. Like that's the kind of environment that these animals are in. Highly stressful, right. lots of elbows, um, yeah. competition for resources, and they're all going through puberty and fattening. It's a very intense, unpleasant environment for the animals. So those animals then go through this effectively like an inflammatory rapid weight gain. And then their process in the case of beef at 16 months typically and you know, a typical kind of free range environment, you would hit a similar weight around like 28 to 34 months. Wow. So In double. our environment, we slaughter 24 to 26 months simply because it's expensive to keep them on. So we get, get them to the bare minimum and then process them. But you're talking about, you know, 40% longer needed if they're eating natural grass and, and walking around. Mm-hmm. So it's very, very... Uh, different, actually more 50, 60% longer. So it's a very different environment. And it's really that combination of like cortisol and inflammatory response. You know, E. coli, which is pervasive in feedlot operations, right? You've heard of E. coli coming out of, Of you know, it comes out of their poop when their poop gets sprayed on the spinach fields, you know, everyone gets E. coli and then sometimes it gets in the meat and then everyone gets, but it's always provenance is from these feedlots, right? Mm -hmm. Well, E. coli makes animals sick, makes cows sick, just like it makes humans sick. Mm-hmm. E. coli makes them barf and have diarrhea, just like us. And it's simply endemic in that environment because they are so immunosuppressed. Is it tragic? It's, it's, yeah. It makes you, uh, makes you want to become a vegetarian, to be honest. And, and that's why you kind of see those people doing that. And I get it. Like, I, I get how that you have this huge vegan community that goes, oh, it's, 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 it's not humane, right? And, or whatever the term is. And I get it, but- it sounds like what you're doing is treating these animals the way it's meant. They're meant to be treated. They're enjoying their life. And uh, I think there's certainly something to be said there. And the other point that I'd like for you to address is this, again, I'm probably going to get the terminology wrong, but positive carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of vegans who go against the, the meat 
world because of the potential carbon footprint. Can you talk to us about that? So think about it this way. If you, like in your yard, Ben, if you were like, you know, you have a bird that flies over your yard and poops and you're like, oh, cool. There's a little bit of nitrogen. It's good. Right. Next day, the same thing happens. And then it rains a little bit and your garden's probably going to get greener. Right. It's not a big deal. What if you had like 2000 pounds of bird poop delivered by your neighbor to the middle of your yard? Like that's all of a sudden a problem. So in and of itself, a little bird poop here, a little bit over there, that's part of nature. And it's actually good for your lawn. If you've got that big dump of bird poop in the middle of your lawn, you're going to have a yellow spot till the end of time, right? right? You know that that level of, so nitrogen and what's available in manure a little bit here, a little bit there, some rain in between. It's great. I actually buy that kind of stuff and put it in my plants, right? You probably do too. Yeah. But when you have a lot of it, it's the same thing. It's like, you know, it's fine for somebody to take a leak in the, in, in, in the grass, right? But if all of a sudden there's a bucket of pee somewhere, it's going to smell disgusting, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to want that in their yard. So just mm-hmm. it's just kind of common sense. Like these, these farms, these big factory farms have giant manures of pee and poo. So that's toxic. Those spill over into the riverways, everything dies. Of course it dies. It's a huge toxic lagoon where you've got all this concentration of very nutrient-rich waste materials. So to me, it's like, well, these are totally, you know, how can we conflate the type of farming that we do where there's two to three acres per cow, right? And the cows move around in groups and yeah, they drop manure and then it rains and that manure grows into the earth and then they walk over it and there's little indentations where their hooves were, right? Sometimes patches of the grass become bare because they eat it and then they dig it up as they walk over it or one of them lays down and rolls over something like, of course, there's going to be bare patches, but then their manure contains lots of seeds. And that's, I mean, that's how evolution works. That's why plants have seeds. So the animals will eat them and poop them out and spread their progeny. That's how nature works, right? So that's actually fundamentally a great regenerative thing. In our farm, we started measuring soil carbon density. A third-party group called the Soil Carbon Project, based here in California, did our baseline study in 2013. In 2019, we tested again, and we have 13 test plots, and 11 out of 13 test plots had significantly increased levels of carbon in the soil with an intensive scaling ranching operation. Right. So we actually increased carbon in the soil while farming it intensively with animals. And the reason why it's the manure in the bucket compared to like spread out over the lawn. It's, it's a low concentration is actually very nutritious for the soil and it has to be combined with aeration. So animals walking over it and, and, and natural rainfall, right? It's a very non-extractive traditional way to ranch. And you look at the great prairies of the world, right? Like, I mean, in America, we had a great prairie. We had the great prairie and we killed it because we got rid of the buffalo, right? We turned them all into pemmican um, to get back to our opening conversation. But that the buffalo were what kept that prairie alive. Do you know the story? Of, yes, you know, I do. Right, the great basketball. So the, the first year that they got rid of the buffalo and they planted the, the prairies, it was like the record wheat harvest of the century. Mm-hmm. Like to this day, we still have not gotten wheat harvest, even with all the genetic modification like they had back in 1930 with those first, for the first two years, it was spectacular. People were becoming millionaires because of their, their farms. And then the third year, it cratered. And then the death bowl happened. Because what happened? You had, you know, millennia of slowly built up what's effectively brittle, so not a naturally robust, rich, 
humus like you'd have like in the Central Valley or something, right? right. The great the prairie is quite brittle environment. And you had this topsoil and, and this, you know, slowly built over many years. Then I tilled it and farmed it and extracted it and took away the animals and that all evaporated, right? So that's a, I mean, the animal's role in the ecosystem, it can absolutely be positive in terms of carbon sequestration. It's the way we have created farming. It's the same thing as like any extractive crop. You can grow tomatoes in a way that's good for the environment in a way that's very extractive. In beef, I think we are doing a big disservice to human health by insisting that all beef is the same. You know, I think about it like I'm going to go to the bank right now and I'm going to take a helicopter. I'm going to go to the bank right now and I'm going to walk. But going to the bank has this has X carbon footprint. Right. So don't tell me that there's any difference between taking a car or a helicopter or walking. That's absolutely ridiculous. You'd say no way. But that's what we're saying when we say beef has X carbon footprint. We're referring to a very specific way of doing it using a maladaptive and extractive technology. It's terrible for animals and also, of course, is bad for the planet. And that's right. like on the, you know, the, the carbon usage for farming the corn and then the methane extraction. And one more thing, too, just to think about it rationally, Ben. Like, I have a cow. I put it out on grass. It walks around, eats grass for two years, and then I kill it. That's one operation. Then I have a cow, and I it's born on one farm. I move it to another farm. I have to grow corn with chemicals, harvest that corn, truck it to where that cow is, feed that cow on that cut, harvested, trucked product, and then take it to another farm, do the same thing, and then process it. How is that second version cheaper than that first version? Right. That doesn't make any sense. So that's a perfect segue into what I want to ask you next. So you guys have just started a new program where you're going to start, you know, I'll let you fill us in on the details, but you're going to start maybe mentoring farmers around the country or, or taking some on, some smaller farmers to teach them these regenerative practices. Because there's clearly millions of farmers out there who may or may not be interested in this type of practice, but they're certainly interested in making money and selling their product and maybe maybe doing something good for the environment, but first they have to be able to live. So you guys have started a new campaign to help, uh, whether you tell me local farmers to help with regenerative practices. Yeah. So we, we're at a bit of a crossroads, right? Where we have to expand our supply chain because our demand's growing and we could do it by expanding our own farm, right? And the option that we want to pursue that I is actually to scale our farm through partnerships. So to use our practices to coach, I mean, our experience with our own practices on our own farm to coach other farmers to become regenerative. And also these farmers, I mean, a lot of ranchers are up a creek. You know, it's not easy to make money in ranching and direct marketing, which means a farmer selling directly to you or me on paper, that's like, that's better. But in reality, as that farmer doing that, I have to get myself or my wife to a farmer's market every weekend and build a customer base while I'm spending all week, you know, working 20 hour days ranching, it's just not really it's very not consistent, right? Because like I might want a cow this month and not next month, right? Yeah. And you end up with a lot of, I'd say there's highly stressed um, systems, you know, like of, of interpersonal systems too. Like mm -hmm. the actual dynamics really challenging to do because it's just you can't do everything. Mm -hmm. So I, I see also, you know, that grass farmers, um, guys that are finishing on grass are not getting enough of a premium. So they're doing a practice, like I said, three to five times typically is expensive, but they're getting like 30% more, right? So the only reason that that works economically is that typically those ranchers own their land outright from their families, you know, so the economics are a little distorted, you know, they're not getting the subsidy, but they typically aren't paying mortgage costs or aren't paying right. land costs. So it's a, the economics are a little odd on grass farming, but 
the opportunity is, can we create a brand that can drive value perception for consumers that allows me to offer a real remunerative price to partner firms to produce in a better way, right? That's the win. Mm-hmm. So what I'm, you know, our, our, I'm really privileged to work with a colleague, James Rickert, who's the head of farms and procurement for Belcampo. He's a fifth generation family farmer. He's been with our company for about two years and he's driving this program. And he's basically, he's put 11 farms into our program so far of beef ranchers. And he's working with them on their regenerative practices, typically starts buying cattle initially, We'll work with them to improve what they're doing, to work into our program, get them organic certified, um, get them certified humane. So we add incremental certifications as well. And then they get a premium price for their product. So it's marketed as a Belcampo partner firm. And then we have our Belcampo estate as well. So the idea is to create basically, I want to build a brand that has integrity for consumers that they can trust is a different type of product you know, a differentiated product in the meat supply. I think a lot of customers, a lot of Americans, especially after COVID, are like, the meat supply is very, very corrupt and very broken. So the goal is create a scalable brand that relies on a network of farmers and and actually offer a higher priced channel for them to move beef in by adopting a step up in their practices. Would most of that be local to your farms? Because like I would speculate that where the cow is raised and grown would, would affect its life cycle, affect its food quality, the, the ability of the farmers to actually grow cows at the same rate based on weather and other circumstances. Yeah, I mean, California's in the West Coast it, for grass finishing is pretty unique because mm-hmm. we don't have a winter right? Like, like you do in the Northeast. So it's a, and we are based where our slaughterhouse is and where our core farms is, is really the home, the center of, of California cattle country. So all of our cattle programs so far has been really regionally specific to Northern California and Southern Oregon. Now in the longer term, that could definitely broaden. There's no like geographic mandate right now for our partner program. And I aspire to build a national, the national meat brand for quality. So ideally, it'd work with farmers across the U.S. The nice thing about Northern California is beef are big, they're expensive to truck. It's also inhumane to truck animals for very long. That's part of our certified humane program is we're not trucking more than two hours ever. Most conventional animals are trucked like around three to five days to slaughter. So it's extremely stressful, awful for them. So we're focused on pretty regional hubs, but I don't see why we couldn't build a hub with another small slaughterhouse we want to support and find farmers around that. You know, like the question now is how quickly can I build the beast that sells the meat? You know, like how quickly can we get going on e-commerce on the omni-channel to get product out there, build a trusted brand with people and then put farmers into our program. It's hard though. You know, we actually now are facing more supply challenges than demand challenges. Interesting. Well, you know, the, the farms that are in our pipeline, they'll buy in, but it takes three years to get certified. Right. And then there's often cultural issues. You know, it's like trust. They want us to buy a load and then engage and show up the next year. And, you know, it's like it's a long conversation. Unfortunately, the guy who's running the partner farms is, you know, he he's equity in the company is a real partner in it. And he, you know, he's a fifth generation family farmer. So you couldn't ask for a more appropriate interface, you know, but still there's trust. And we're we're kind of like the hippies from the Bay Area, you know, the organic meat company. And, sure. and there's some skepticism because. Unfortunately, you know, farms have been in in the U.S. There's been a lot of promises made and a, and a lot of a lot of kind of flim flam marketing things that happen. So right. I think it's going to be a long journey. But I think in the long term, executed well, Belcampo could really 
transform outcomes and, and be kind of like what Organic Valley did for milk production. You know, Organic Valley transformed dairy. It's an incredible brand. Our program is not exactly the same as that, but that's the kind of a, that's one of my inspirations in building this is like, could we actually create a network, verified brands, a verified brand that, that allows farmers to market at a real premium right. um, and capture those additional costs. And you can understand their trepidation, right? Is like if they lose one or maybe they, that you guys don't fall through on one, you know, slaughter, they could lose a lot of money, potentially their livelihood. So it's an interesting reality to live in. So one thing we spoke about yesterday when we talked on you was how things have shifted for you. You, you guys were very focused on uh, retail. And now you're saying maybe there there's an opportunity that it, because of COVID, you've seen the opportunity that exists in direct-to-consumer online sales. I'd like to hear about that. Yeah. COVID has been incredible for our business. It's like, it was so frightening initially, but in so many ways, it's it's evidence, like I'm sure you've had this in your own life too. Like it's evidence areas of stress where things weren't working and it's, and it's evidence like roads have opened up of opportunity. And one of them was e-commerce. So e-commerce was tiny part of my business. And we only had it really because we have national press occasionally about the brand. And so when you do national press, it's it's a requirement that you can ship nationally. Mm-hmm. So I set up a basically like a little money losing division where we shipped inefficiently and expensively out of our slaughterhouse in, in Northern California. And then COVID hit and we just went 25x you know, really quickly. And now we're at 30x against pre-COVID. So that's been incredibly exciting. And I, I, I think the barriers to pursuing e-commerce previously had been around just concerns about adoption, people being afraid of having meat show up, sit on their doorstep, uh, thaw, potentially have contamination issues. And it's, it's a reality. It's so I, I used to order from a different company. It's happened to me twice. And like, yeah. you know, and it's not the fault of the company shipping, it's the fault of UPS, right? UPS is supposed to deliver on Wednesday, that it doesn't get there till the following Monday. And, and what do you do? Yeah. 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 So my vision is to build e commerce that's a like a hyper high customer service, high touch experience. So my goal would be that if that happened to you, you get a replacement box immediately mm-hmm. on me. Right. So that we would create really high customer service, high value. And in that, it's not the only channel that I'm pursuing too. I mean, we're, we're building e-commerce dramatically and we're building e-commerce with things like suet, pre-portioned liver, pre-portioned heart, cooked meatballs, like a wide range of meats too for different kind of like, you know, lifestyle choices and just ways to, you know, focusing too on, on portion meat on things that are harder for us to get in conventional channels. And then we're also pushing into grocery stores with our branded products. So those are the two major growth areas, you know, keep in mind, we started as a restaurant and butcher shop company. Well, that's what I was going to bring up next. That's perfect. So the first time I got to enjoy restaurants out in California and I was just blown away. It was, it was like the greatest thing ever when I went to talk to Huberman. And then was in New York the very next week and I was staying at uh, Equinox, the hotel. And I was like, let's walk across to this mall. Had no idea. We're like, hey, we're going to check out this mall. And we're walking. And I was telling the guy that I was with about Belcampo, how I'd been there the previous week. The gentleman I introduced you to, and I think you guys ended up having a conversation. I'm with him. I'm like, oh, you're going to have to check this place out. So he's a restaurateur. And I was like, yeah, check this place out. You're going to love it. Turns out we turned to the left and there's a Belcampo right there. So I got, I got to enjoy Belcampo twice in two weeks. Um, uh, it's such an amazing restaurant. So anyone who gets a chance to, to visit the restaurant should definitely do it. But uh, so I didn't understand. I didn't realize that that had come first to your business. Yeah. So, okay. So remember, Ben, when I started with 2012. And so keto didn't happen. Paleo right. hadn't happened. Um, high protein, low carb was kind of just starting. And it was funny. I had, I mean, I have my own bias, which is like, I basically have always done some version of paleo and keto, just yeah. how I like to cook and live. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But I, I, I started to see like these dudes would come in and we used to do rotisserie chickens and we always laugh like there's the rotisserie chicken guys. There's like these guys who come in, probably guys who you're friends with back in 2012. Totally. And they, like, they would <laughs> probably be, like, me. get like four rotisserie chickens, like two guys and just like pound them, you know, yeah. with like some water. I was like, oh, I want more of those dudes because our rotisserie chickens are expensive. Mm -hmm. So I was like, I, I wonder where those people are and if I can find more of them. And then, of course, there's crickets. Like there's a couple of those guys out there and sure. um, the CrossFit was just starting to pop, but CrossFit didn't have as like such strong values around the quality of the food. You know, now that's kind of overlap more Then basically on just because of my bias towards wellness and health and just the stuff that I was passionate about. We did things like bone broth. So we launched bone broth in 2014 and all of a sudden I had a lot of cancer survivor customers right people. And I had a lot of new mother customers. So we were doing things around wellness without really having an intention about wellness. Okay. Mm. But think about it, in 2012, we were starting to build effectively like an animal wellness, human wellness brand around meat, but there wasn't an audience yet. So the restaurants let me do it. And the restaurants, I mean, fortunately I have a backer who sustained us through some really challenging years, but the restaurants did, I mean, what happened was I opened in Marin first in 2012, and then I opened in LA in 2014. And then after 2014, I got Best Burger in LA from Los Angeles Times. Best Burger in San Francisco from San Francisco Magazine when I opened it. I got top five burgers in the US from Time Out. I got Best Steak in America from Inside Hook. So like all of a sudden, it like we didn't intend it to be really as much of like a culinary brand, you know, it was more like the animal wellness values, but the burger made it work. So the burger became the thing. LA Magazine said we were better than Shake Shack. When Shake Shack came to California, they're like, whatever. We had Bill Campbell. So we got like, we started to get this lift, you know, from Bon Appetit, top 100 dishes of the year in like 2015. Wow. So like we got this huge culinary credibility. That's less a part of the brand story now, simply because I don't pursue it as much. I think it's, it's just like there's bigger fish to fry right now. So I'm having more fun with like my totally keto compliant menu. Like, that's awesome. Like, I love figuring that kind of stuff out. So we've kind of grown more in the, like, how do I make it easy for people to have an awesome experience with their optimal diet? Like, that's my goal in the restaurants now, that you can come in on whatever protocol and have a luxurious, indulgent, awesome meal, and you're full, and you had a great time, and you're not feeling like you're the person being like, is there gluten in that? You know, like, it's really easy for you to engage however you want to, right? And I also made our restaurants totally clean, about, you know, it wasn't a priority early on. It was, there were other priorities really, but two years ago, I cleared out anything. We made everything GMO free. We took out seed oil everywhere. Um, we put organic vegetables as any center of the plate vegetables, are definitely organic certified. I got rid of any ingredients with canola oil. Like really like we went through any prepackaged product we had and made sure there was no seed oils and no GMOs. So I totally cleaned out the back end as well. So our, our business went from starting out, like in the early years, there wasn't the wellness market that there is now. So I had to kind of hack it. And fortunately, we became famous for our burgers and because the stuff tastes really good, you know, it's like it, you have your cake and eat it too. And that's what sustained us really till 16, from 2012 to 2016, we were just famous for these really good burgers that came from this farm and people were bananas for the burgers. Burgers were 60% of my revenues. Then, and then the butcher shops were really cool for the culinarians, you know? The culinarians, you know, it's it's as much about the kind of sex appeal and the chef name or something as it is about the origin. There's less interest in the culinarians in origin than there is like in Europe, right? Where the culinarian is is origin obsessed, right? right. The American culinarian is more brand obsessed, right? Or, or kind of like 
it's a different, it's a different mix. And there's definitely not as much of an overlap between like the wellness and, and culinary and kind of world, right? That Venn diagram doesn't, unfortunately, you know, I think a lot of the lead culinarians, you know, you look at them like on TV and it's like, they're like proud of the fact that they're a dumpster fire in terms of their own health. Right. So it's like, it's an interesting thing where I'm like, if you're talking about eating, wouldn't you want to manifest health? Like, wouldn't that eating's your number one tool for health? Like, why wouldn't you want to show up with that as something like eat what I'm eating for health? But that's in, in our culture, the culinary world has become one of like overindulgence, extremism, and not and actually being unhealthy is almost a point of pride, right? Right. So when we met, one of the very first things I said to you, and if you remember, I said, can you please do a cooking channel? So I love to cook and I look for, when I travel, I look for chefs. I look for people I can work with and, and take lessons and, and like to cook a recipe. And there's really, it's really hard to find chefs who are, are capable and health conscious. And I think there's a huge market of people who would, who would jump all over whatever you put out and teaching us skills and, and uh, practices, best practices on how to prepare high quality meats with minimal ingredients, like just minimal high quality ingredients. Like yeah. I have an idea, but like I'd literally travel and try to find people who will teach me how to cook great high quality food with high quality ingredients. Like I don't want to learn how to cook mac and cheese. Like <laughs> what, what, what is this? And that's really like, I've got a chef place just up the road and you go like, okay, today we're going to cook. I don't know, like mac and cheese and some other nonsense. I'm like, really? Like, no. So I would love it if you, I mean, I know you're super busy, but at some point in your life, hopefully you have time and you can put together some type of instructional website or something for people who are aspiring to do this, which may inspire more people to, to use your, your ingredients and use your, your meats because now we know how to cook them and we appreciate them that much more. I think that's an opportunity. I think, you know, there's sort of a funny in the US, it's a culture of extremes. And I feel like a lot of people in the health world, you know, I joke about like the people who eat powder, you know, and, and it's not like, I just think it's eating should be a great pleasure. I think you should, you can eat powder in a pinch, but you should try to eat real food and use your teeth when you can. You know, I, I think if you have to blend it, I mean, don't, I, I, that I, I personally have a, like a sensuality bias against, yeah. against smoothies and shakes. Well, we're also like, disconnected from our food, right? Like people don't even want to see, like when you talk about slaughtering, I hear people, people hear that word. And they're like, Oh, I know people who don't want to see skin and they don't want to like, I'm like, no, like you have to connect with this being that's given its life so that you can exist and thrive. And people are so disconnected from it. So let, we should partner on a cooking show for. I dig it. Slow down. Yeah. I mean, I, I also think it's, you know, in, it feels like with, a lot of the, when you talk about like health and wellness cooking, it's usually about weight loss. You know, it's like, there's a lot of like really thin, like talk, you know, and that's like, that's also not my jam. It's like a funny thing where you, you're, there's not that middle space. It's either like we're overweight and really everything's fried or very, very like, like fake food and being really thin. And there's not like a, what about we just eat normal, healthy food? Wellness and strength and and yeah, vitality, I think is the word, right? So everyone's focused on longevity and I think that's important, but I think vitality may be even more important. Like I don't want to live to be 150 and be a decrepit, unhealthy human. I I want to be vital and vibrant and, and feel amazing all the time. And I think that's, you know, quality of the food is key. Yeah. I think also too, just like something about the joys of domesticity, you know, of like, I think now with COVID, one of the beauties of COVID for me has been that people are gardening and they're enjoying cooking. And, you know, I think of like little things about like, if you want to, you know, experience vibrant health, like buy fresh spices, pay attention to your olive oil, 
make sure you smell your food. But people you know, don't know how, so right? We're, we're right? so indoctrinated into like the, the I don't know what you have out there, like uh, Ralph's or something, right? And here it's like Publix and people are just so indoctrinated. Like you just go in and get shit off the shelf and we have to teach people new practices. And this is where a cooking show would be useful is like, here's how you grow your own herbs. Here's where you can find great local foods, like creating some type of educational system. Cause especially like my, my demographic and younger, I, I'm disconnected. Like I, I wouldn't even know how to grow an herb or I wouldn't know how to cook it. Cause it wasn't part of what I grew up with. It was, I grew up with, you know, if I want food, I go to the grocery and I buy something in a, in a package and I throw it in a pan or put it in a microwave that, I mean, that's not what I do now, but like, that's, that's my demographic. Right. Well, so, yeah. And there's so much health in traditional food parents. Mm-hmm. So, one thing that fascinates me is like in traditional food or in, in like just old fashioned diets, like you use um, parsley a lot with meat mm-hmm. and you use vinegar with meat and you use mustard with meat. Well, parsley is a really natural, it'll limit any gas production in your stomach. Yeah. It also clears your breath. It clears, it's a, it's a gentle antimicrobial, yeah. you know, and vinegar is amazing digestive aid, right? Mustard is vinegar based. Like there's mm-hmm like very traditional pairings that it's incredible. I think to re-educate your like sensual powers in your palate to appreciate flavor combinations and those support right. optimal health. So you speaking know? to that, this is a perfect time to plug your book because your book is legitimately amazing. And this is not because you're on here. It's like, it's legitimately amazing. My kids and I actually pick a recipe about once every two weeks and we prepare it. Awesome. It's so good. So, so you did such a great job and the pictures are great and the recipes are amazing. And, I think we should definitely send people to Belcampo to buy some meat, some sustainably raised meat, and definitely get your amazing cooking book, cookbook. Dig it. I'm down. Yeah. And I think the encouragement too is to like, to, to allow yourself to explore with food, to use your own powers of taste, right? Around meat to discover what you like, push yourself on that and not fall into that path, that trap of like, everything's got sugar and salt on it. And that's delicious, right? Yeah. We have to encourage ourselves to look at what's, what are the flavor combinations that are traditional? How do we explore those and, and learn to cook with those? That's what I try to talk about in my book. It's just like, it's not about anything. I think all the innovations in nutrition are typically around making things convenient. And, and that usually means hyper-processed. Hyper-palatable, yeah. Hyper-palatability. And hyper-palatability is not your friend. And I think you have to, you know, educate the, the first step though. It's like, I think for women in the U.S., the only time that we talk about it is like people go through pregnancy and when they're pregnant, they're, oh my God, I'm craving this. And it, that's the first time they're craving something that's not like a donut, right? That's the first time they've experienced a craving. that's not just purely emotional mm-hmm. right? because your body, you're more in tune during pregnancy with what you're, but there's very few moments in the U.S. and they're certainly not celebrated. Cravings are like, you're weak. Emotional eating, it's typically overeating, secret eating, like cravings are associated with that, right? But really, cravings should be for like in the springtime, you should crave herbs, you should crave green, you should crave vinegar. In the fall, you should crave fat, you should probably crave legumes and substance, you know, you should crave pork, right? There's a, like there's a seasonal eating pattern to everything. And I think we don't pay attention to that and we don't let ourselves indulge it because we think craving it's like donuts and Skittles or something. And it's like, no, cravings are actually something, you know, if you look at wild, I mean, wild animals, but also domestic animals, they've did great studies about goats and other ruminants when they are, you know, when they're, they have an intestinal distress, they'll actually go eat bitter herbs naturally in the field. Like that's a very common thing. When, when you have decessional, you know, stomach trouble, you should be eating parsley and oregano and arugula that will actually soothe your stomach. So if you can coach yourself to pay attention to those feelings and not looking to, to, to medicate with it, but actually to, to pay attention to what food you're needing from that, that's a super, you have a superpower. 
Like you have a superpower for your health yeah. once you learn to really feel your hunger. Not just your hunger for calories, but your satiety for other micronutrients, you know, because those micronutrients are what really build balanced health. And that requires paying attention when you eat, paying attention to how you feel. And most people are, again, disconnected from our bodies. And hopefully people can take this opportunity to not only connect with their body, but connect with their food. Anya, you're amazing. I think you're absolutely wonderful and fantastic. And you have a supporter in me and Belcampo. I'm so grateful for what you do. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me on. And thanks for eating all the meat. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's a wrap, ladies and gents, boys and girls. I hope you had an amazing day. I hope you enjoy the podcast with Anya Fernald. As I told you, she might be Wonder Woman. She's pretty damn awesome. She's done some pretty incredible things, and it seems like she just never stops. I have no idea how she does it, being a father as well and a business owner, entrepreneur. I'm certainly no chef. And so many other things she's doing to just inspire us all. If you guys love the podcast, if you did, head over to Instagram and give Belcampo and Anya a follow. They're doing such incredible things, providing us with the highest quality meat that exists in the country. So I suggest you guys support Belcampo and also definitely support our sponsor for today's podcast, which is Bub's Naturals. The guys over at Bubs are just incredible and they're doing such a great job keeping such a positive energy and providing such high quality products with integrity to us. And hopefully you guys are diving in. If you're someone who drinks coffee, period, you should be using MCT. It's something that will slow down the caffeine. It's something that will give you an uptick in energy production. And the collagen is something that I think across the board we need for hair, skin, and nail production, detoxification, and so many other bodily necessities. So guys, I hope you enjoy the show with Anya Fernald. If you did, don't forget to head over to iTunes and subscribe or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. I would love to hear from you guys. Leave us a review. Have an amazing day and live your greatest life in a body you love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.